Hi, I'm Steph from Heinemann, and today on the podcast, we're handing things over to Heinemann fellow Julia Torres. Julia is a librarian within Denver Public Schools who works to make her library a place for students to seek answers to questions that intrigue and excite them, and to reignite a love of reading through developing rich, culturally and linguistically diverse reading lives. In this episode, Julia sits down with Janet Damon to talk about how libraries can be healing spaces. Hi, my name is Julia Torres, and I'm a Heinemann Fellow. I am also a librarian on the Montbello campus in Denver Public Schools. I work with students in grades 6 through 12, and I work with language arts teachers to help develop culturally responsive curriculum through librarianship. So a lot of my work is around supporting students in the development of positive reading identities and helping to reverse some of the trauma that happens to them in the school system, specifically as it connects to the development of a reading identity and a relationship with language and words. So today we're going to be talking with my friend Janet Damon. She is a librarian as well, 22-year librarian vet. She's going to be talking to us about libraries as healing spaces. And here we go. I bring you Janet Damon today. She is the Library Services Specialist for DPS, has worked in library services for 22 years. She focuses on family and community engagement and culturally responsive librarianship. She also supports students in the development of reading identities through literature. She is the founder of Afros and Books, which partners with librarians within community organizations to bring programming that centers Black families and children. Janet is one of my very favorite people. She is a personal friend of mine. Mm. I am a librarian today in Denver Public Schools, primarily because Janet approached me one day and she said, girl, we are thinking about opening back up the library. Would you be interested if it were to happen? And it was in my classroom on a day that I was just exhausted, tired, feeling beat down by the whole system of things. And I needed some hope. And she brought that to me. And she continues to be a person who lights that flame of hope within a lot of members of our community. So I'm really excited to share her with the Heinemann podcast listeners today. Janet Damon. Hello. I'm so excited to be here with you. Thank you for being with me. Of course. Of course. What can you tell us about community engagement and the different community and environmental factors that might impact students' experiences in the library space? When I think about some of our libraries and some of the communities and students that uh, we hold dear and that we love and that we serve, um, we do see that there's challenges that students are facing, that we want to make sure the library is um, centering those students' lives and supporting those students. Um, when I think about some of the youth violence that has um, been happening in some of the schools and around some of the schools that we currently uh, serve, you know, one of the things that we've talk to our librarians about is how do you center and listen and listen deeply and provide nurturing spaces as well as generative spaces for students to gather in? And how do you adjust your programming to really center their lives? I think about uh, a couple years ago, we had a number of um, students who um, had committed suicide. And we created some library programming that was celebrations of literature for children and little ones. We partnered with Project Proud Fatherhood and Black Child Development Institute, and we did an entire You Are Loved series. So students and families got to come, and while students were hearing these stories and seeing them read by these fathers in the community, 
parents got to visit three different tables that had resources around, how, what do you know what to look for? What are the signs? Let's talk about some of the um, needs that family, like students might have and how parents can provide support. And we did that with the Black Psycholo um, Psychologists um, Organization here in Denver, as well as the Center for African-American Health. And it was healing, it was powerful. Heavy hearts, heavy hands, it's like boxing. Jim also brought speakers out and talked to students about they're ever feeling bullied, how these huge boxers were like, I felt that way. And this is how I overcame it. And these are the partners that my family partnered with. And it was just like those moments where we take library services out of the library and we go right into the community and boots on the ground, making sure that folks know we're here to support them. Well, I definitely knew that you were here to support me mm -hmm. and I definitely felt it. I know that there were days when you were driving books around in the back of your car mm -hmm. to different library spaces because we didn't have librarians or working libraries in them. And that's it's not easy to be a secondary librarian these days when people are closing libraries and when folks have to defend their positions on the regular mm -hmm. and they have to defend the need to have a library on the regular, which ultimately connects to our topic of a mm -hmm. library as a healing space mm -hmm. when you're trying to defend the right to have that space and hold that space for mm -hmm. students. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about creating libraries that are psychologically and emotionally safe spaces mm -hmm. um, that can foster connection between the students and the communities they live in. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that takes us into this conversation, you know, can you be psychologically safe if you are not seen? If you are invisible, if your lived experiences are not presented in the classroom, in the school, in the collection, you know, what creates psychological safety? It's being seen, it's being heard, it's being loved, it's being respected, it's being honored. And how do you do that? Well, you listen, you promote books that say, I see you and I see this is happening and here are the ways that we can serve. And when we think about sometimes, you know, literacy instruction and what reading is and, and who is a reader, that students can internalize a lot of negative ideas around who readers are. Well, if the successful readers in my school and my class all look like this, then maybe I'm not a successful reader. Or if people who aren't reading on grade level, like you're not a successful reader. Those are really negative connotations and it really reduces what it is to be a reader. We read to connect, we read to celebrate, we read to soothe ourselves, we read to see the humanity around us. And all of those experiences help us to develop a reader identity, who we are and who we see ourselves as in the world. So I think about just how having a strong librarian who is promoting and excited. Like I think about you and how, you know, when we reopened this library, students hesitated. They were like, wait, uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to go in there because I might owe a book. Can I take and, the books? Right. Yeah, like, can I take the Can home? I touch the books? Yeah. And then and, people were taking like 10 at a time. Right? Yes. And we think about what was their experience historically? Well, historically, right, the libraries were closed in their buildings. The librarians, there were no librarians in their buildings. So, you know, they... There wasn't this opportunity to grow and flourish and develop your own reader identity and to feed and nourish yourself through the literature. And so it really is about, you know, how do we make sure that all of our actions align with what we're saying? If we're saying, you know, students, you know, we want to see them thriving as readers, well, then what are the kinds of books and what are the kinds of experiences they're having in those spaces? 
So that's a big piece of it. And I also want our students to, I know that DPS and a lot of libraries across the country have been abolishing fines. I like our students to feel like this is their library. This mm-hmm. is not my library. These are not my mm-hmm. books, even though I might refer to it mm-hmm. that way sometimes. Mm-hmm. I definitely want them to feel like this is their space. Mm-hmm. This is their collection. I may have used whatever resources I have mm-hmm. to help develop it, but it's deliberately constructed and run and built for them. Mm-hmm. So I want that. That's really important to me that yeah. they feel emotionally and psychologically safe in here because the classroom often isn't a space where they can feel that way. Mm-hmm. Some of my Heinemann research is about supporting students in reclaiming their reading identities, but also reclaiming the way that they grow as readers. Mm-hmm. So they move along a trajectory of reading complexity by going from one text in elementary school, so to speak, to gradually more, increasingly more complex texts. Mm-hmm. But who is the one who's deciding what's complex? It's usually the teacher. Mm-hmm. So in the library, we have that ability to have a little bit more wiggle room or fun mm-hmm. space where all books belong to all readers. Mm-hmm. And so students have the ability to choose what they want and to get excited about books that will, as you said, show their lived realities and identities, mm-hmm. but then also represent experiences where they can feel a little more free or safe to talk about things like suicide, Mm. like um, being displaced. They can talk about these experiences with other students and with their community in a non, I don't want to say a non-academic setting because the library is still an Mm. academic setting, but it's one where they don't have the pressures of evaluation Mm. tied to whatever happens. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about ways that um, libraries within the district have connected with community engagement to mm-hmm. create programming that supports students in feeling emotionally and psychologically safe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that who we partner with says a lot about who we are. And I think that one of the things that we've done is really start a process of partnering with people who are doing the work in all the spaces that they're doing this work. So whether it's a summer literacy camp with Black Lives Matter 5280, or whether it's a year-long you know, programming that we've done with um, BCDI Denver, Salt Sankofa Story Times, we are really intentional about making sure that we're partnering with groups that are affirming, liberating, and truly capture the social justice work that we think is so important that goes hand in hand with equity when we think about the lives of our students and the challenges, both the structural challenges, as well as the ways that limiting beliefs can be like, put onto schools and communities in terms of, um, you know, when I think about some of the schools that didn't have their library spaces staffed or open for students, you know, for students, they take a message from that. They hear that loud and clear, Right. And so when it came time to do those pop-up collections, students created their own book clubs. Mm -hmm. And it was through Mm -hmm. that spark Mm -hmm. that turned and the adults had to pause and they had to say, are we honoring these kids? And so to see those pop-up collections turn to spaces where, you know, there are libraries now that are growing and, and they're still figuring out staffing. Like, I think that that is that piece that we promote strongly, that every kid needs a champion who is advocating fiercely for their right to have this intellectual and liberated life of the mind. And so I think we have to think about the difference between educating so that students have survival skills in the workplace versus educating so that students are are liberated and have a life that they are intentionally curating for themselves. And so I think especially the work at the Urban Peak 
that's a youth shelter where students are um, unhoused and who have really lost a lot when we think about families and support and stable housing. And, you know, when I go there to do our book clubs and students are unpacking for me all the books that are helping them to navigate that space or pulling books out of their pocket or saying, here are the authors who are speaking life to me and Toni Morrison and Alice Walker and Nikki Giovanni. And, and I think about what is it that can't be taken from you? Like everything else at some point, like, you know, what we store inside us, our ability to read and to find solace and liberation in the books that we read, that is the most crucial skill. And, and that's the biggest reason why we read, right? And I think like we read to see our own stories and, and selves reflected, but we also read to connect with other people, right? Mm-hmm. We've talked a lot about how reading and discussing stories is one of the oldest things that human beings mm-hmm. have done. You know, sitting around a campfire and telling stories, that's nothing new. Mm-hmm. That's something that you do as a child and you learn mm-hmm. that oral storytelling tradition, that is something rich that is a part of every different culture. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I guess I really value um, in this district is the ability to make those choices to have texts in our collection yes. mm-hmm. that might be banned or censored other places. Mm-hmm. So our students have a rich catalog of books to select from. Mm -hmm. So they're not being censored by me. I'm not over here um, using the excuse of selection to limit the types of lived experiences or realities Mm -hmm. that they can read about. You have Mm -hmm. talked before about how through reading, we can build empathy and we can connect with other human beings. Can you tell me a little bit about what you've seen in terms of empathy and compassion and how reading can help us navigate Mm -hmm. trauma. Mm -hmm. Well, the research is really clear, you know, that people who read, especially reading a novel, it allows a person to, for a time period after they've read this book or novel, to have higher uh, reported empathy for others, right? And so when we think about students and especially, um, there's been some research around how students and are experiencing loneliness right now, especially um, just how social media has maybe changed the nature of the relationships that students have. But, you know, having a space where you are cultivating more empathy through the act of reading. And then I think partnering that with a book club. One of the book clubs I'm really excited about is um, our Pirates football team. So here we have a ton of uh, right now in the Pirates is predominantly little boys and predominantly African-American and Latino youth and it's been phenomenal to partner with these coaches and to listen to them inform like us of the books that are meaningful in their lives. And then to train them to be these literacy partners and literacy mentors for the young children in the program, but also the parents and families so that they can look and see themselves also reflected in who's encouraging you to read. And when we think about cultivating community around both the books that were, you know, affirming text, enabling text, a powerful books, but also the rich conversations that people see themselves in the community around them and they make connections. And all of a sudden, when a coach and a six-year-old love the same book and it's a picture book and they are cheering this book on, like that's really the powerful moments that literature can bring everyone together. And so I think about just how are we also cultivating community? So it's it's the books and the spaces and conversations that we um, nurture across both generations. We have an intergenerational book club that's beginning and it's youth led. Youth are selecting the text. And then elders are like, 
wait a minute, you've read this book? That's the book that you chose? The skin I'm in? I read that, you know, when I was in high school. Or I read this book. And those conversations, all of a sudden, we're seeing where our common humanity lies. So that is a healing space, right? Mm -hmm. That all of a sudden, we're deconstructing what it is to be a reader, what it is to be a man who loves to read, what it is to be an elder who loves to read and a teen who loves to read. And we're connecting over books that are framing our lives. Like these are touch points. I think, you know, um, I think of Dr. Alfred Tatum's work around reading for their lives. Like it is important to have these stories that help us navigate real and true dangers in our society and in our community. And these texts provide the path, right? Mm -hmm. They're like an illuminated pathway to uh, success and, and thriving, mm -hmm. you know, in spite of some of the different challenges that we may face. I love what you said about an illuminated pathway because I can see lights on both mm -hmm. sides and I can think about some of the earliest books that shaped, as Alfred Tatum said, mm -hmm. the literary lineage that we mm -hmm. all have. Mm -hmm. um, some of the work that I'm going to be doing in the future does have to do with literary lineages and how some of our students, for whatever reason, they'll be in the school system. Everybody will nurture them in elementary a little bit through middle school. And then all of a sudden, it becomes this really intense experience where all the books that they have as part of their academic life are these painful experiences. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the work that myself and my colleagues do is trying to reverse the pain associated with reading mm -hmm. and to have it be a more pleasurable experience mm -hmm. through which we can also learn. Mm -hmm. And so we want to help continue that literary lineage so it doesn't start in elementary and then skip 10, 20, 30 years and then pick mm -hmm. back up again, mm -hmm. but that the students are liberated, as you mentioned, and they're able to have freedom of intellectual thought, but then also freedom of, you know, expression as they talk about these books and the way that the books, the ways that the books have shaped their lives. Mm -hmm. Speaking of this, we have some awesome visitors coming to the Montbello Library this semester, we've got Min Lei is also going to come with his picture book called Drawn Together. I love that book. And our Latinos in Action group of high school juniors, mostly juniors, they're working with some first graders. Mm -hmm. And so Min Lei and Drawn Together and first graders and upperclassmen, what could be better? Mm -hmm. So that's happening. And then Eugene Yang is going to be here talking about graphic novels. And he used to be a teacher. So I always love listening to him talk because mm -hmm. I always learn something every time. Mm -hmm. So I think that will be a really fun experience for our community to be able to just think about more than the written word on the page, mm -hmm. but also pictures as stories. Mm -hmm. So, and then we have Elizabeth Acevedo coming oh, so later exciting. on this semester. All of it. I'm just here for all of it. That's so exciting. It's just, so exciting. Mm -hmm. We were so lucky to have Angie Thomas and Jason Reynolds in one year yeah, Skype into the library last year. And Jason <laughs> came in person as well and was at the Tatter cover yeah. and some students got to meet him in person. Mm -hmm. So we, we have had a lot of love from the literary yes. community, which yes. has been incredible. Nick Stone donated a mm -hmm. bunch of copies to our library. Mm -hmm. She was here in person as mm -hmm. well, mm -hmm. signing copies of Dear Martin. And, you know, we've just, we've experienced a lot of love from our community of authors. Mm -hmm. And we are very appreciative of that. I know it has made a difference oh, yeah. in the reading culture, community, mm -hmm. and just the way that our students see reading. Because there was a time when, I swear there were tumbleweeds blowing through this <laughs> library, you know, and there was a time when, you know, they just didn't see this as a space, 
where they could come and find nurturing or community. And now I see them supporting one another and my student assistants, one of them last year complimented every single sixth grader as he came through the line, as they came through the line, checking books out and just witnessing that and watching them give book talks to each other. Mm-hmm. That is, that only happened in a year and a half. Mm-hmm. So that gives me so much hope and fills my heart with a lot of joy because Yes, I may have had something to do with it, but it's the way that our community of students came together to support one another. Mm -hmm. So there's no shaming. We now have assemblies where people are given all kinds of certificates for their reading. We send out lists all the time of our top patrons and the titles that they're selecting. There's always a manga Mm -hmm. among the selection Mm -hmm. of the top 10 titles. So I know that Montbello students are reading and I know that Montbello students love to read. And for communities of color that are intentionally, we have our libraries removed, we have our schools co-located, and then we are underfunded or defunded. Mm. And so then what winds up happening is our ability to have that connection with each other and with culturally diverse or culturally responsive texts that is taken away. That ability to have that is removed from us. And so it is one of my greatest hopes that we can start to reverse that trend and that people can get libraries back and have them staffed mm-hmm. by teacher librarians mm-hmm. who are as passionate about the work as some of the people that I work with, mm-hmm. such as you. So can you tell me um, just a little bit about a book that you are reading that you think folks should know about? Well, I think most people do know about this New York Times bestselling author, but I have just finished uh, Children of Virtue and Vengeance by Tomi Ademi. And uh, it took me through all of my emotions. I love her writing. I love that book. I'm also reading right now Breathe by Imani Perry. And, you know, I think that there's this piece where, you know, you think that some emotions that you feel are so deep and so complex that it's almost hard to just put it into language. And then along comes this author who takes all your feelings, all your emotions, and just so poetically breathes life into them. And so, you know, those are um, some books that have definitely taken me on some journeys. How about you? I am reading River Solomon, The Deep, which is about the transatlantic slave trade, but it's about some slaves that were pregnant when their ships went down in the Middle Passage. And they gave birth, and the babies that were born formed a new kind of civilization of people mm. under the surface of the sea. And the most interesting part of it to me is that there's one member of their society that is sort of like the memory keeper. Mm. So at the same time that she holds on to the memories, the collective memories of the people, she also holds on to a lot of that pain from the Middle Passage of being a slave, being taken from your home mm. and all of that. So I am really processing right now how books can help heal collective trauma that some people say is stored in our DNA. Mm. And just doing a lot of thinking about that and how Mm. not only the truthful stories that we write, but the people such as Kiese Lehman, who was, he wrote heavy, you know, I mean, out here just putting it on the page for us. I am so grateful to authors that have the courage Mm. to write stories like that, to tell their truth, 
because I'm still coming into a place where I can do that. There's a lot that I've experienced that I'm not ready to talk about. Mm. So yeah, I think that we, some of the work that I hope to do with our students is helping them see, as you have mentioned before, they're not the only ones who have lived through trauma. Mm -hmm. And this isn't the first time that a generation has experienced some of the things that we are experiencing Mm -hmm. because so much power and so much empowerment and so much liberation can come from looking at our elders, what they have been through and getting strength from that. So yeah, the deep river Solomon. I love it. Yeah. I love Hibby's one of my top books ever read. Right. I've read that one in one sitting. Couldn't put it down. So I should listen to him read it. I listened to the audio book. Okay. Okay. And other essays also, they just will sit with me in my spirit all the days of my life. Mm Yeah. This would not, I would not be me if I didn't shout out to poets as well. Of course, we've got Magical Negro, Mm. um, which is incredible. Morgan Parker. I have to mention Lima Limon, which is a book that talks about femininity, violence, masculinity, Mm. toxic masculinity, Mm. but it also just delves into the female journey Mm -hmm. through relationships and Mm self-discovery in a way that I have not seen a lot of people do Mm -hmm. um, through poetry. Mm -hmm. And I'm still growing in the poetry that I read. In my Mm -hmm. private life, I do read quite a bit of poetry Mm -hmm. and have written some too. But I think that our students really are gravitating toward poetry right now as a way of healing As they read, um, I know Amanda Lovelace is really popular with Mm -hmm. students on our Mm -hmm. campus. Mm -hmm. So that's a way, too, that students can sort of, you know, they go through these relationship ups and downs. Mm -hmm. And um, in her books, she really does a good job with capturing what the experience Mm -hmm. is to go through a painful relationship Mm -hmm. and come out onto the other side. Mm -hmm. I have to shout out Bell Hooks, too. Yes. I'm doing a whole, like, I just wanted to go back and reread some of her books. Yes. And so I am... You know, I read it, I read her memoir for the first time this last couple of weeks, and just just to see this intellectual life bubble up from and, and having no access as a child, and also having a family that really did not believe in intellectualism and did not believe and and to have her this incredible thought leader, mm-hmm. you know, have grown up in that and just and also um, teaching to transgress. Teaching right? to transgress is one of my favorites I mean, of all time. I needed bell hooks. I yep. needed bell hooks a lot earlier than I got her because yes. I got her in college with Ain't I a Woman and. I feel like I really probably needed her at 16. Yes, yes. Amen to that. I needed Audre Lorde long before Ooh, I found her, yes, too, you know? Yes, Audre Lorde. Talking about our lives, right? Our, yes. Our literary lineages. Our literary lineages and the ways that we have healed yes. through literature. Yes. Oh, that just that whole thank you for this conversation. It's given me so much life. Thank you so much for being here with me today. I'm so glad that we got to do this. Listeners, this is the second time that we're recording this conversation <laughs> because we got so carried away and Julia forgot to push the record button the first time. So this is very real. This is not in front of a studio audience. You are here in my office with Julia Torres and Janet Damon. Thank you so much. See you next time. My thanks to Julia and Janet for their time and expertise. You can follow Julia's work on Twitter at JuliaAaron80, that's 80, and learn more at blog.heinemann.com. And as always, thanks for listening.